This is one of the places I, I love to bring people when they visit the forest. In the north, we have a view over to the North Downs. To the south, you can see Fell Beacon. To our east, you have the Roman Fort. And looking west, you're looking up the ridge to Witch Cross. You can look around, 360 degree view, and you could believe that you're in the middle of nowhere, miles from any civilization. And yet you could say to a stranger, just over the brow of that hill on the northern horizon is the biggest city in Europe. And yet all you can see is trees and grass, all you can hear is birds and insects. It just boggles the mind just to stand here and know that. Table Gill, Kids Hill, Jill's Lap, King Standing, Crow's Nest, Poundgate, Dodd's Bottom, Chelwood Vatchery, Isle of Thorns. I've lived here since 1938. Poundgate, that's nearly foreign to me, going over that far. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a, a stream right out in the middle of the forest. If kids from Nutley cross that stream, the kids from Fairwalk would beat you up. You were on their turf. But Dodd's Bottom, I lived in Dodd's Bottom when I was a child. All, all the best people were down there. <laughs> in the summer holidays, we'd make it so that we lived off what we could get, whether it be catch a fish, cook it, go and nick a swede out of a field. Willow, chew on bits of willow, because they're quite tasty. I mean, at the right time of year, you can find the nuts and everything, but, you know, just to stave off the pangs of hunger, i just chew on anything. <laughs> so we didn't have to go home and spoil the fun we were having. You can think on a misty day that you're actually up in the wilds of Scotland with the heathland um, and then the sort of wind blowing across. After walking on it, riding on it, living on it for 30 plus years, I can still be surprised. There's a light that's different one day that just sort of illuminates a part of it. I'll see a bird that I haven't seen before. Just always different. First of all, Ashdown Forest is anything but a forest. So when the visitor looks for it on the map and comes here, they are rather puzzled as to where all the trees are. It's interesting that everyone assumes that forest means trees. Actually, it doesn't. Forest is a very old legal term, and it means an area set aside by the king and his nobility for hunting deer. It's a huge open space. It's massively green, wonderful heathers and all kinds of little windy paths, streams running through it, secret places, the home of Pooh Bear, of course. It's just like this secret green garden space high up. At about three miles from Grinstead, you come to a pretty village called Forest Row. And then on the road to Uckfield, you cross Ashdown Forest, which is a heath with here and there a few birch scrubs upon it. Verily, the most villainously ugly spot I saw in England. This lasts you for five miles, getting, if possible, uglier and uglier all the way. 
till at last, as if barren soil, nasty spewy gravel, heath, and even that stunted, were not enough, you see some rising spots which, instead of trees, present you with black, ragged, hideous rocks. William Cobbett wasn't exactly complimentary about our forest. Who knows what it looked like in 1822, um, but by description, fairly similar. I take quite a different view. It's a stunning landscape. I'm sure Cobbett was completely correct. I mean, why would he describe it sort of falsely? This was an absolute industrial area. This was where they made all the cannons. Some of the people who made these cannons made an awful lot of money, so they must have had a jolly big industry here. You know, the big posh manors around here are all ironmasters. And so this would have been, over time, stripped of wood, smelters, blast furnaces. It is a post-industrial site. It must have been horrendous. It is now incredibly difficult to know what is natural and what isn't. day is it? asked Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favourite day, said Pooh. The birds on the Ashdown Forest, while often quite difficult to see, are really a special lot. The heathland that we have here has a rather different set of birds, which I just find fascinating. The Dartford Warbler, it's absolutely super bird, and I just wish there were more of them around. They're susceptible to blanketing snow. It's the sort of April snow that absolutely kills them off. So we haven't seen one on Old Lodge for about four years, uh, just after a, a time when we had 11 on a single day. The Dartford Warbler, one has to work quite hard, actually, because it's so secretive and skulking and it just somehow is a little bit in danger of, of sort of disappearing into the general sound of the whole place so you do need to really stop and listen out for this compact and this it's like somebody who wants to keep a secret but they can't they have to let it out after all but they're still trying to keep it and so but, but Something like that. They're so fast, the sounds. And you don't know how do they coil this spring so that when they release it, all these different sounds come out so quickly. It's just so so tense it is mesmerizing now i don't think anybody comes to the forest without being told about the experience of hearing a nightjar as the sun sets 
and I've been in the privileged position of being able to take a whole group of children, school children out to, to listen for them as well. And there can be nothing more frustrating than building up the anticipation of hoping to hear one of these things and then realising that tonight's not the night and the children are starting to lose interest and realising that they're a long way from home on a dark bit of wooded heath. And it's normally at this point that I say to them, well, if you can mimic the, the sound that a nightjar makes, then at least we can pretend that we've heard one. And my voice doesn't go high enough pitch to recall a nightjar, but the kids can often do it. So I get them to try and copy me, but at a, at a higher pitch. And I remember clearly one time doing this and the children were doing their And sure enough, within the space of a minute or two, a nightjar popped up right nearby, perched on a bare pine branch and started churring and it completely blew them away. Nightjars are interesting because they like heathland because it's very open, because they nest on the ground in open areas. And their defence mechanism against predators is to lure the predator away from the nest, with either with the eggs or the young in, pretend to have a, a broken wing. And I know they do this, but when it actually happens, it is so convincing that I completely forgot and it, it, it completely duped me. So I approached a nest that had been disturbed and the adult bird moved away from the nest with its wing dangling to its side. And I was so upset because they're such rare birds, such beautiful birds. And I was like, oh no. So my instinct, of course, was to follow it, to try and protect it, help it. And it lured me away from the nest until I was miles away from the nest. Then it flew off. And I thought to myself, I fell for it. And it was so convincing. Amazing way to avoid a predator. That's me whistling, seeing if we can fool the young buzzard into thinking that the adult is nearby. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so I think what happened there was I mimicked the call of an adult buzzard and the, the young responded to that and flew straight over our heads, being fooled by my poor imitation. And the young's now just perched up on a dead twig, hoping for its parent to come back with some tasty vole or beetle or whatever else that they like to eat for breakfast but what you're also noticing is the fine warning calls that the robins are giving out to alert all the other small songbirds that there's a, a raptor around. risen. There's a bat flying around above us. We heard an owl just before we set off. We're walking down the track and to the side of the track is a mound of small bits of leaf and pine needle, bits of dead bracken and in the pile are holes and in and out of the holes and over the surface crawl myriad 
wood ants. They're about three or four times the size of your common garden ants. When I was a child, my father used to impress us all by putting his hand on the surface of a nest, as I'm doing now, and letting the ants crawl onto his hand. You can let them do it, as long as you want, really. And then you can flick them off and sniff your hand. And it, that hurts almost more than the biting of the ants. It's reminiscent of vinegar, but it's actually methanoic acid, which is slightly different. Really acrid smell really hits the back of your sinuses. And that's what they use to protect the nest and their grubs. Here on the Ashdown Forest, you'll find 34 species of butterfly. We have about 45 species of butterfly in Sussex. And you'll find some quite general common species here, but the real speciality is the silver-studded blue butterfly. That's uh, one of the rarest species in Britain, a small blue butterfly, which on the underside of its wings has some orange dots, and in those orange dots you'll see some little silver studs, and that gives it its name. One of the most amazing things about the silver-studded blues is they're very dependent on a relationship they have with ants here in Ashdown Forest, two species of, of the black ant they have here. So the, the caterpillars will attract the ants in, they, they can make a, a smell which lures the ants closer and also they, they apparently can sing, they make a noise which uh, the ants seem to quite enjoy. And then they also secrete a sugary solution which the ants uh, feed upon. So the ants get a free drink and a song, and in return, the caterpillars get a 24-hour bodyguard from these ants. The ants will fight off anything that tries to attack them. So this, uh, this link with ants is very, very vital, very important to them. If we lose the ants, if it gets too overgrown here on the heath, it'll become too cold on the ground, and the ants will go, and we'll lose the butterfly as well. So when you're managing for the silver-studded blue, you've got to manage for the ants as well. I was brought up close to Ashdown Forest at East Grinstead and I've known it all my life. My parents brought me onto the forest in the 1940s to picnic. I, I tell you what I did teach myself to do in those days and that was I could tickle trout. You put your hand in the water and you stroke the fish and for some reason or other it sort of sends them into I suppose some kind of temporary torpor and you can just clutch them and fish them out and I took the trout home with with great pride and my mother refused to cook them because she had this unanswerable logic that any fish which was silly enough to allow me to fish it out of the stream had to be sick so we never ate the trout that I caught Roe deer in particular are excellent mothers. Fallow tend to have a fawn when it's suckled, put it down and leave it. But roe deer keep within sound distance. I once had a, an occasion when a lady's dog chased a fawn and as the dog had caught it, she took it home and then phoned me and asked me if, if I could help her. And I said, well, probably the doe would take it back if it's not injured. And it wasn't. So the following morning, the following morning, I, I 
met the woman at five o'clock in the morning and we took the fawn back to where she had seen it get up and we laid it down. We walked away about 50 yards and stood behind a tree and within five minutes its mother came to it and took it away. They're remarkable mothers. <laughs> a very special time to be on the forest is October into November when the rutting season begins. I remember walking through the woods once and seeing this very impressive mature buck with properly palmated antlers doing a noise. And it heard me and looked up. So it inquisitively but very stoically puffed up its chest and he really strutted his stuff across the field and stopped short. He wanted to know what I was, but it wasn't going to let any moment of fear show as it walked across that field. It was saying, I'm the lad, I'm the lad, I'm the lad, with every step. It isn't as black as it used to be. <laughs> the forest isn't as black as it used to be because I can't remember the last time I saw a forest fire. And we locals knew they, they weren't accidents. There was quite a lot of, how should I say, commoners who kept livestock. And livestock like nice young grass. And I said, that won't grow underneath a bracken, dead bracken. So fires occurred. And I said, strange, it, most of them start at night <laughs> when the sun isn't shining on a bit of glass to give them an excuse. <laughs> Funny they sprang up quite close to their properties. <laughs> I get asked a lot about what the average day for a ranger is and it's impossible to say because every day is different. And you come to work expected to do one thing and you find the day just takes away with you because you never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the excitement of being a forest ranger because you just don't know what's going to happen. Particularly in the spring, early spring, we have to deal with forest fires. We can often find that 100 hectares could burn in one very bad forest fire. And we get, you know, 80 firemen up here, 25 appliances. It can be very, very dramatic and quite scary. My grandfather, he was the one I listened to. And grandfather was the one and only forest ranger at the time. During the war, I think he, he did have a motorbike by then. But prior to that, he, he had to ride all the <laughs> all the way around the forest on a, on a push bike. But they all knew him. A lot of them knew what pub he went into. And they'd go in there in the evening. They'd go and meet grandfather in the pub and air their grievances to him. The history of the forest is fascinating because when it was set up for the hunting after the Norman Conquest, it was a, a big, solid, heart-shaped block, much, much bigger than it is today. And at various points in the forest history, bits have been sold off. There's a great big hole in the middle, which is now Pippinford Park and the MOD training centre. But also lots of large blocks of the forest were sold off in the late 17th century as commercial rabbit warrens. And the names, there's still this Hindleap Warren, Pressridge Warren, Crober Warren and Broadstone Warren, they give away the history that these were once commercial rabbit warrens. 
It's amazing that over the centuries it, it has survived and the reason that it survived is that back in the 17th century there was that dispute between the commoners and the people who were trying to enclose bits of the common that ended up with this Royal Commission in 1693 which actually set aside and determined that in perpetuity the commoners would have 6,400 acres exactly 10 square miles of common law land in perpetuity. When I saw 13 come back from school, we'd go out with scythes and cutting heathland, cutting heath and cutting bracken for bedding. Acres we used to cut with a scythe. And that was after we come back from school. Being a commoner, I've grazed the forest for 50 years, 7 to 800 sheep, 130 cattle. It's my livelihood keeping these animals. And that's what the forest needs, grazing, grazing and burning, which was the old traditional way of doing it. I've studied the forest for 50 years, at least, really studied it. And I've got letters back years saying what would happen to the forest. It would become a jungle, a birch, and all you'd have is pigeons, magpies. That's all Ashton Forest would be. And if you lose all the heathland, you lose all the insects, you lose all the flowers, you lose everything by taking over a bit birch. People love it because it's open air, but they don't realise in 10 years, birch trees get up sort of 10 foot and you don't see any more of it. People are very passionate about trees. People equate trees with conservation. Whenever we try to stop the encroachment of trees onto the heathland, we, we come against problems. Woodland is very common in the southeast of England. It's the most densely wooded part of the British Isles, whereas heathland is rarer than tropical rainforest on a global scale. So whilst trees are fantastic, they're not as special in this context as the heathland vegetation. We need to prioritise what we do. Rather than leaving the forest to just regenerate naturally, we're trying to recreate those processes that created it in the first place. So we've got primitive cattle, we've got hardy sheep, uh, we've got Exmoor ponies which are very close to their wild ancestors. So essentially we're trying to recreate the, the system that would have produced Ashdown Forest all those thousands of years ago. The forest rangers get so much jip for cutting down trees but when I was a kid there were no trees there. There was heathland, it was proper heathland, really good heathland. If you look at any of the aerial photos from after the Second World War into the 60s it was just heather. Heather, 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 heather. I'm a former conservator and active commoner, and that's my sheep you can hear in the background. I graze them on the Ashton Forest. Tipsy, be quiet. I take the role of commoner seriously. It's a role that people like to have, but very few actually actively act on. And that's modern living really isn't it it's hard work actually grazing them on the forest it would be much easier keeping them in a field but I think a landscape without that link to its history and its heritage becomes a bit of a park a bit sterile in the 1940s 1945s the atmosphere was completely different because it was all country people and they all understood the country but now we've got people coming in I've got nothing against town people but they've got to realise that we've got sheep, cattle, so many people, you know, walk on Ashdown Forest, they're dog lovers, but they don't respect the animals on the forest. Only last week, seven sheep were attacked. Two died, and the two that died had their throats ripped out. So we've lost, 
It is. It's literally hundreds of sheep over the years. And the sheep are doing a great thing out there, you know, grazing the forest. And the dogs don't really do a lot, do they? <laughs> Clearly the population of the villages has grown. And I'm certainly not against that. It brings new young life into the village, which is important. But it does seem that everyone feels they have to have a dog, but not everyone feels they have to go to the trouble of training it, which is just really unfortunate and the lead to some horrible incidences. The weirdest thing I had was some years back when we were free-ranging our sheep and uh, a dog was chasing our sheep and the owner called out to me, can't you keep your sheep under control? This is what I want to really get through. The dog chases the sheep, it gets bit. Under the wall, because it keeps warm, it goes festering quick. You know, it just rots. And the next thing you find is it eaten up with maggots. And it's, they're eaten alive. And what a death, eaten alive. But people think because the dog just bit the sheep and it ran away, it's okay. But it's not. I was actually taken to court because I said, the words I said was, I'd sooner shoot the owner than the dog. And when they took me to court, the two women said, he threatened to shoot me. I said, well, I didn't. I said, I'd sooner because, you know, you're the one who's causing the problem, not the dogs. We deal with an awful lot of instances of sheep worrying. It can be very distressing for the animals. They can abort their lambs. And it happens far too frequently. We've had some very serious instances where dogs have gone for people on horses. And either the horses have been injured or the rider's been very seriously injured. The other really sad aspect of my job, and there aren't many, I'm very lucky, is we have to deal with all the deer casualties on the roads. I reckon we deal with about 250 or 300 deer casualties every year. Ironically, I'm a vegan and people think it must be really hard for me to do, but actually if you've got an animal that's suffering and in pain, the best thing you can do is to put out its misery as quickly and humanely as possible. And that's something that the rangers have to do. We can get called out at any time of day or middle of the night to go and deal with an animal that's in distress. My principal sadness about what has happened on the forest in my lifetime is that birds have disappeared. And the main culprit for that is dogs off the lead. When I was a child, there were curlews nesting on the forest. Every now and again, you'd be walking along the forest and a curlew would fly up with this amazing call. That was exciting. That was something special. The curlew was something special. Every year, I knew where I could walk at a certain time of the year, and I would say, oh, good morning, Mrs. Curlew. And there would be a curlew sitting on its nest. On occasions, the following day, perhaps we had visitors come, and I'd take them for a walk on the forest, and we'd walk right by that curlew, but I, I used to warn them, don't stop walking, just I point, you look, but you keep walking. But then, she didn't make it one year. There ought to be a closed season for the birds to nest, really. Not a chance, though, is there? Not a chance. The best part of my life has been spent here. 
coming out after school with my friends, taking tools and going and building dens, which would then get knocked down or would be chased off by the rangers, to then learning to riding a bike and then realising that we weren't allowed to cycle on the forest and we get chased off the forest by the rangers for doing that, to then coming out here as a teenager and getting drunk and lighting campfires with my friends and then getting chased by the rangers again. And now I see children and young people spending more and more of their time indoors, more so than even prisoners in some situations and I think there's going to be a cost associated with that which we don't fully realise now and one of them could be that children don't appreciate and respect and understand the need for wild spaces and places like this and that'll mean that there are less people out there to fight for it in the future. Supposing a tree fell down, Pooh, when we were underneath it? Supposing it didn't, said Pooh, after careful thought. Piglet was comforted by this. I'm Mossy and I live in the Ashdown Forest. And one of the games I love playing is ball hunting, where you uproot ferns by their root and you strip them from their leaves. There's a group of children hiding in the ferns and the wild boar, you're pretending to be a wild boar, is pretending to graze in the ferns and they have to surprise you and throw spears at you while you run away. And we play games like that often. I think that the locals, majority of the locals, take the forest for granted. They're pleased to live here, but I don't think they appreciate all its qualities. It's in doubt at the moment as to what will happen to the forest. I hope that it's here for a, another thousand years, <laughs> because the, the population will need it. They will need this open area. It's a fantastic area and uh, well may it remain so. I think it is extraordinary really that the forest is still here. I mean there's so much pressure on land and there were probably so many opportunities for it to be taken away but I think it was a sheer bloody mindedness of the commoners over the years that have really fought to, to keep it. The most unusual thing I've ever seen on the forest is I was riding near the windmill and it was in the middle of summer and everything went dead still. And I've never experienced that in my life. The horse on grass made it sound like concrete, the novice, because everything went dead still. The leaves never moved, there wasn't a movement anywhere, on the, anywhere. And my father always told me the calm before the storm. And I'd never given it a lot of thought. But within half an hour, we had the biggest thunderstorm I've ever experienced. I sometimes imagine this place, all the soil that kind of soaks up the stories of the people that have actually walked and talked across this land for so many years. And I sometimes think that so many people I know come here, meet their friends for a walk, and they talk about things, they share secrets from their lives maybe, and they, there seems to be a freedom here to speak. The forest invites conversation, it invites sharing. The Ashdown Forest is quintessentially English. It seems to produce a response in people which is very deep. 
beauty is in the eye of the beholder and I love it I can't think of any other place I'd rather be I've spent so many happy hours out there